to uh, take a look at chapter 12 and see uh, what we can do with this. This uh, is just really awesome, I think. If we can get, you know, there, there's some things that, you know, you wish you could tell the bottom line right now. But there's so many things in this book that you really got to work through the details or it won't mean anything. And uh, as we start into 12 and 13, 14 and so forth, we really, we're going to have to kind of plod through some things. And if you can see them a step at a time, then where you end up is really going to be awesome. So, chapter 12, we're going to look at a new cast of characters, verses 1 to 6. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Seven. Uh, through six. six. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, and they should feed her. That they should feed her there one thousand two hundred sixty days. All right. So we're basically introducing a new cast of characters as we're sort of taking a behind-the-scenes look. We see a woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, crown of twelve stars on her head, and uh, what's the condition of this woman? Pregnant. Yeah, and she's. Uh, Ready to give birth. And who else do we have in this story? <coughs> a dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns, and a tail that knocks a third of the stars out of the heavens. And what's the dragon wanting to do? Devour the child when he's born. And then the third character, obviously, is the child himself. A son... His destiny is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, as we're starting to look at this, um, one question that comes up is, who are these characters? And probably the easiest one to identify is the dragon. Who is that? Satan. And if you wondered about that, verse 9 says it explicitly. The devil's powerful. He's got an immense tail. Remember, we have the tail of the locust, the tail of the horses, now the tail of this dragon. And, and you know, um, he's trying to devour the child. Now, I think we can also identify the child pretty, pretty easily. Who is that? Christ. Yes, because Psalm 2 says that he was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Um, can you think of some ways or, or uh, situations in which Satan tried to devour Jesus? Herod trying to kill the babies around Bethlehem. The temptations in the wilderness was an attempt to destroy him in a different way. Good. His murder. Yeah, killing him on the cross. The attempt to throw him off the cliff at Nazareth. Peter, get the behind me, Satan. And so forth and so on. There were some even prenatal attempts. Uh, when uh, Pharaoh wanted to drown all the boy babies in the Nile and things like that. Um, but, in this case, it doesn't happen. Now, how, why was the dragon foiled in his attempt to devour the child? 
more powerful? Yes. And he scuttled Satan's plans by catching the child Jesus up to heaven, to God and to his throne where Satan cannot touch him. So, the woman ends up fleeing into the wilderness and being provided for by God for 1260 days. She's going to need some provision because when the dragon can't get to the child, he's got other plans that that woman will have something to do with. We will see a couple of sections from now. But that brings us back around to the most difficult question in this section, and that is the identity of the woman. Have an idea? I would say God's people in general, earlier in the text, probably the Jewish people and later the church. I think so. I think that's exactly right. Yes? I just want to point out that if you follow the logical progression of your thinking, it would have to be uh, God's people here. I think so. I think so. They could say that's even a test of that hypothesis in a way. Yes. And there are some passages that will help us. I'm just not going to take the time to do this right now. I think you can do this on your own. But sometime look at Micah 4.9 to Micah 5.4 and you'll see very much the same analogy. The people of God in labor to give birth and they finally do give birth to the one that was born in Bethlehem and so forth. As you look at that whole picture, it's the people of God and the labor pains they go through leading up to, to Christ being born. And so I think that's, that's what we've got here. Is that God... Uh, is is uh, describing his people under the figure of a woman. This woman's going to be very important throughout the rest of the story. God's people as a woman versus the devil's people as a woman. And you're going to have occasion to look at both women from time to time in this. So, that's just kind of uh, setting the scene for us. Now, can we yes. presume that the devil here is representative of Rome? Because... The it was Rome and Herod that was trying to kill Jesus? We could assume that Satan would use any tool he can get, including Rome. But I don't think we should identify Satan with Rome yet. Okay. The next section, I, you know, one of the things that we do in our Bible study is we don't read it like we were reading it for the first time. Read this next section like we were reading it for the first time. I'll tell you what. This is one of the most shocking things you ever read in the Bible. If you hadn't known this was in here, you'd have never believed it. 7 to 11. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And one more. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. There was war in heaven. That doesn't beat all. Would you ever have expected to read that? <laughs> of all the places you would never have expected to see war. You know, there's war in heaven. Well, who's fighting whom? Michael's fighting Satan. Yes, Michael and his angels versus Satan and his angels. 
That would have been quite a war. And what happens? Satan lost. The dragon and his angels were cast down. That's, uh, by my count, defeat number two in this chapter for the dragon. He was defeated in his effort to devour the child. Now he's defeated in the war against Michael. And he's cast down where? That's important. Now, you're wondering, what in the world is all this about? Look at verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. So he identifies the time frame here. This occurred now when the salvation, power, kingdom, authority of Christ came. When did the salvation and the authority of Christ come? Absolutely. What we are seeing here is Satan losing the war with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because that greatly defeated Satan. Now there's tons of things to say about that and tons of passages that relate. This is where Jesus stomped on the head of the snake. Genesis 3.15, injured his heel, but crushed his head. This is, you know, Jesus binding the strong man and robbing his house from Matthew 12, 28 and 29. This is, you know, Colossians 2.15, Christ triumphed over the principalities and powers. Christ, God, gained the triumphant victory over the devil when Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, why? What happened? Well, Jesus atoned for man's sin. And when he did, he thwarted the devil's purpose in connection with God's people. Think about Satan and what he wants more than anything. What does Satan want? Take away God's glory. And how does he want to do that? What are the pawns in Satan's scheme? We are. We are. And how does Satan have control over man? Sin. Sin. If man has sin on his account, what can Satan do? Absolutely. He can accuse him before God and claim him. Now, what if Jesus had never come? Or what if Jesus had never died and been raised? How successful would Satan be in those accusations against men? 100%. Why? All men have sinned. What Jesus did with his death and resurrection was a crushing blow to Satan. Because now Satan cannot accuse the brethren before God. You know, if, if, if Satan... Uh, was to say, you know, go up to God and and, and say, you know, uh, Jason's a sinner. God says, well, you know, I'm looking at his record right here. And there's no sin on the record. You know, the blood of Christ has cleansed all those sins. No, he's not. You can't make that accusation. <laughs> there's no sin on his record. 
Satan lost his ability to make claim to God's people. Done. Just a similar situation we see with Satan and God in Job? Yes. Absolutely. In a similar situation between Satan and God in Zechariah 3, where Joshua, the high priest who represented the nation, was clothed in filthy clothes. That word filthy is a strong word in the original. And Satan was there to accuse him. And God rebuked him and took off Joshua's clothes and gave him new festal robes in its place. And, and wouldn't allow Satan to accuse him. He, that symbolized what Jesus was going to do. There are many, many texts that are relevant to this. I'll mention a couple of them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, because we're really dealing with almost the whole purpose and plan of God in the Bible right here. I mean, wow, we could, we could spend a long time just looking at how this theme is relevant throughout Bible history. But in Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What did Jesus do? He became a man. Why? To destroy the devil and free those the devil had captured. Free mankind. Or look at 1 John 3 8. 1 John 3 8. End of it. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So, what you're seeing when Michael beats the devil and casts him out of heaven, that's just kind of the heavenly counterpart of what Jesus did on the cross. Satan lost his ability to accuse faithful Christians before God. He lost his claim on them. He was whipped. And and so going back to the idea in Revelation 12, verse 11, they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus died for them. The accuser's authority against the brethren was nullified by Jesus' death. And... Because of the word of their testimony. They were faithful to him. And they did not love their lives even when faced with death. They were willing to sacrifice themselves. They were loyal to God. Jesus shed his blood for them. And therefore, Satan has no claim on them. That is awesome. That's amazing. And that is the background to everything else that's happening in Revelation. We're going to see in a moment what's really going on as we look behind the scenes at this. Ha, you know, think of Satan. I know it's kind of uh, uh, maybe disagreeable to have to uh, delve into Satan's psychology. But how would a whipped tyrant feel? Vengeful. Vengeful infuriated. He is so upset. And he's got some plans up his sleeve. That's where we're going in the next section. So, this we're, we're getting background that really helps us see what's happening in the persecution of the Christians. Comments and questions through 1211.
And let's go ahead and look at 12 to 17, because that's really going to fill this picture out. Somebody want to read 12 to 17. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and all you who dwell in. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. For the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, so this is what we just said, isn't it? (laughs) Woe to the earth and the sea, (laughs) because the devils come down to you having great wrath knowing that he has only a short time. You know, the devil's so mad, A, he was just whipped, B, he only has a short time, and C, he's really only got one kind of option left. Now, his goal? Accuse men of sin. With the Christians, he cannot do that, because Jesus' death and resurrection. But there is plan B, C, and D. What can Satan try to do? David? Yes, and that kind of thing, which is to try to do what? So that he can do what? Yes, see, there is one possibility left to Satan. If he can get us away from God, then the blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse us from our sins any longer, and he can accuse us. So that's his plot. And he's mad. And it's all he's got left to do. And so, infuriated, he puts all of his efforts into the task of trying to get the Christians on the earth away from God. Now, in this context, you know, he persecutes the woman. Now, you've got kind of this battle. He's persecuting the woman. God's helping the woman. So, God does several things. In verse 14, what does God do for the woman? Eagle's wings. Yeah. Gives her nourishment for this three and a half times. Time, that's one Times is a dual form. It probably indicates two more times. And then a half a time. Three and a half times. This period of persecution, God's nourishing her. He's taking care of her. What is the what is this dragon slash serpent trying to do in verse 15? Flood the earth. Yeah. He's flooding the earth to try to do what? Drown the woman. And poor dragon. What happens? Yeah, I'll tell you what. Everything he tries doesn't work. The earth swallows up the water. So he can't drown her. So how does he feel about that? He is enraged. Oh, 
That's the third defeat in a row in one chapter. You know, he lost Adam his chance to uh, devour the child, and he lost the war in heaven, and now he lost in his effort to try to drown the woman. And so, verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He is so angry. He is on the warpath trying to figure out anything he can, pull out any stop to get the people of God away from God. Now, before I let you talk a minute and uh, so forth, let me say one thing. Do you see how helpful this passage is to afflicted, persecuted, first century Christians? When Satan is turning up the heat of persecution on the Christians in these churches, it would be so easy to think, what happened to the Lord? I thought he, I thought he was the victor. I thought he had the power. And it looks like Satan's winning. No. The ferocity of the persecution is a sign of Satan's defeat. Not a sign of his victory. Why is he persecuting so fiercely? Because he lost. Because it's the only thing he's got left to do. That is so helpful to see that. You know, the, the, more, the more fierce the persecution, the more desperate you see Satan is. It's all he's got left. That is such a helpful insight for these first century Christians. All right, comments and questions on this. Uh, verse 12, you think the short time is just the uh, three and a half year short time? In the context, I think so. Yeah, from verse 6, would you speak at the same time? Yes. Yeah, I think the short time goes back even to the little while that the souls underneath the altar were to wait. It's the three and a half years. It's the 42 months. It's the time of the persecution. Uh, in, in the context, in the concept of this book. You know, the fact that it's three and a half years is significant. What's the uh, perfect period of time? So what's three and a half? Half of seven. Yeah. So it's not the perfect, it's half of the perfect. <laughs> Matt. What do you think is the significance of verse 16 that the earth helped the woman and opened its mouth and drank up the river? The earth doesn't always have very good connotations in Revelation. So here we see it aiding the woman. What would you make of that? That God uh, uses all kinds of instruments. I, I'm not, I, I don't have a specific thing in mind. Maybe there is something. There's plenty of Old Testament passages where the flood of waters try to drown God's people and God delivers in various ways. I would just see this as another way in which God delivers his faithful from a flood. So you wouldn't necessarily attach a lot of emphasis to the word earth as, I as would, meaning like the, those who are on the earth opposed to God. Yeah, I would take it more as the physical creation. I was trying to make it fit with, you know, like when the, all the stuff came out of the abyss, it just ended up persecuting. It ended up being directed after the wicked instead of after God's people. And so what was intended to be persecution against God's people got diverted from its purpose and ended up being directed at the earth, the wicked people instead. I don't know if that fits here, though. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the same word as world in the no. original. 
I, I don't think it is. And if it's not, the world is more the people. The earth would be more the creation, I would think. Yeah. Verse 6 mentions where she has a place prepared by God. Could this be the same place that is referred to as the earth in verse 16? Or I guess it's hard to know for sure. I mean, again, we're trying to give meaning and linkage here. Well, yeah, I've more taken the place as maybe a particular place on the earth where God brought her into this wilderness where he was sustaining her and taking care of her. For a while. Yes. During this time of persecution. There are some other things that we can think about. Um, I think that there is a temptation that I see, at least in the world, in the religious world, to over-exalt the strength of Satan. You know, the devil made me do it. You know, it's just so hard, the temptation's so strong. Well, I don't think we ought to see it quite that way. I do think the devil's mad as a wet hen, and he's doing everything he can. The fact is, he's been whipped. He's been whipped over and over again. I don't think we ought to lose to a loser. I believe we can, with the power of God, win the victory over Satan in our life. And I think we sometimes cop out when we say, oh, Satan's just so strong. The temptation is so strong. It's just so hard. When I see people saying that, to me, they are kind of pre-excusing themselves for giving in. I don't think we ought to do that. I don't think that's the Bible picture. I think the Bible, the Bible picture is Satan's whipped. He's been beaten and beaten and beaten. We do not need to give in. Christ is stronger than Satan. I think seeing that will help us fight the temptation. We give in. Shame on us. We shouldn't. We certainly don't have to. Comments? I want to do another thing with this section, for whatever it's worth. I just think this is cool. I also think there's probably something to this, maybe even more than what I've seen so far. But, um, there is a rather remarkable amount of Exodus symbolism in this section? What can you figure out? What what can you see? The woman fled into the wilderness? Yeah! What else? Nourished by God. Provided for by God with the nourishment, like God nourished them in the wilderness with the manna. Yeah? Uh, The baby was saved from the devil with Pharaoh was trying to kill the baby. The devil was trying to kill the baby. And God saved in both places. Good point. Yes. The serpent. The serpent. What's the dragon thingy? Another virus. Exodus. All right, yes. Okay. The water. The water divided. Yes! The water is divided. The earth swallowing up the waters. Yes! On e- brought out on eagle's wings. Exodus 19.4. That God gave eagles wings to the people of God. What else? What about Pharaoh as the dragon? Passages like Isaiah 51. Right? Oh, where am I? Yeah, Isaiah 51, 9. 
Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, of the generations long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? I think there, Rahab the dragon is a reference to Pharaoh. And also, you've got Ezekiel, what is that? Ezekiel 29.3, that uses a similar expression for the Pharaoh. Uh, Ezekiel 29.3, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers. So I think, you know, this idea of the dragon is is an appropriate symbol for Pharaoh. Um, and of course, Pharaoh pursuing the Israelites as the dragon pursues the woman. See if there's anything else I've got in this. So, what did the Israelites want to do after they escaped from bondage? Go back! back. That was really bright. And what do sometimes we want to do after we've escaped from the territory of the dragon? Go back. Let us never want to go back. Comments and questions. Really the only tools that Satan had after that rescue from Egypt was to get them to commit idolatry and acts immorality just to was going after church. Yes. Other comments on 12? Tell you one thing I need. Jonathan, you want to fill that up with water for me? Thank you. Oh, you got one? All right. Hey, that's cool. That's good. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Here we have a symbol Yeah, yeah, there's probably something there. All right. Well, when we come to chapter 13, this is fascinating stuff. Um, the dragon, well, think about it, if you were the dragon. You're doing your dead level best to get the woman away from God. God's people away from Him. What do you always do if you're in a major fight and you haven't been doing real well? What would you try to do? Get help! Get help! Call on some allies. That's exactly what the dragon does here. He's ultimately going to have three allies. Two of them we'll read about in 13. The third one we don't get to until 17. These allies are fascinating. Think about what are the ways that Satan tries to get God's people away from him? One thing is he tries to entice them into sin, into worldliness and things like that. What else does he try to do, Patty? Yes, persecute them and scare them away from the Lord. There is a third major thing he does to try to get God's people away from him. Lie to us? Yeah, lie to us with... What do we call the devil's lies to us? Thinking about something else. There's another major thing. We talked about it earlier. Do what? False doctrine. Absolutely. Aren't those three really quite different things? I mean, quite distinct approaches the devil has. He'll persecute us and try to intimidate us away from God. 
He'll bring false doctrine and try to deceive us away from God. Or he will, you know, seduce us with lust or with greed or, you know, with, uh, you know, substances or whatever and try to get us to fall into sin and get away from God. I I think those are all approaches Satan uses and that's really what we're going to see in these three allies. And uh, I think there are some specific historical references that, you know, when the devil tries to persecute in every generation, he's got, you know, his persecution ally. So I think he's got his persecution ally in the first century. But I think the devil always is drumming up some persecution allies. I think the devil had his false doctrine ally in the first century. But he's always got his false doctrine allies. And so forth and so on. So I think we'll, we can see perhaps some specific things historically that he was doing as far as these uh, allies were concerned for these churches, but I think it's really what the dragon constantly is doing to try to get us away from God so that he can't accuse us. So, chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. So the dragon's there on the seashore and calls up this beast out of the sea. And what does he look like? Scary. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. Well, it says the people could see he had a mortal wound, but it was healed. Yeah. How could they see a mortal wound if it was healed, though? Don't know how that worked, but, but um, it was amazing. It was on his head, and Jesus hurt the devil on the head, right? Yeah. <laughs> But I'm not sure that's quite the same thing as this fatal wound. This was just a one of his heads. Like his head had been cut off and sewn back on or something. It's still pretty weird that they could see it was a mortal wound, but it was healed. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Maybe part of his head's bashed in, but he's still talking. I don't know. You know, he's got ten horns and seven heads. Another thing. 
This is just speculation, but how would it be a mortal wound if it was only to one head and he had six others? Well, that head's killed. He's got six more, but I think this is a mortal wound to one of his heads. Oh. You know, if you're a seven-headed monster, you die one head at a time. So. <laughs> Guess you've never been that before. It's pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Very, um, sorry, Gary. Yes. Seven, seven heads, one less, would make not a perfect number. Is that good. Right? That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Amen. <laughs> And this beast is a conglomeration. It's got, uh, you know, um, he was like a leopard, and the bear's feet, and the lion's mouth. And, wow, he's a pretty fearsome creature. Um, and he seemed pretty powerful if he's able to survive that fatal wound and was healed. And the earth, wow, they're amazed. They just think he's, he's really awesome. Who's like the beast? Who's able to wage war with him? You know, he's just he's just really uh, really pretty incredible when it's all said and done. And uh, you find out in verse 5, there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act, this is kind of a surprise, for 42 months was given to him. With all that build up, you'd have thought he'd have lasted forever. This is a 42-month beast. And of course, that brings us back He's the guy who then who's been persecuting the Christians for that special time of 42 months of persecution. And he blasphemes against God. And verse 7, this is the beast from 11.7 because he makes war with the saints and overcomes them. But notice everything's given to him. It's given to him a mouth in verse 5. Authority was given to him. Verse 7 was given to him to make war with the saints. Authority over every tribe, people, and tongue, and nation was given to him. I take it that he doesn't have quite as much autonomy and authority as what he looks like. He only gets as much as was given to him. And I take it that the one who's giving him that much rope is the Lord. And he can't go beyond how much the Lord gives him. You never get the feeling in Revelation that Satan nor his forces ever can just go off on their own, and do as much as they want. They can only go as far as their leash allows them. So, but he does have authority to make war with the saints and overcome them. Well, wait a minute, Gary. It says in verse 4 that the dragon gave him power. That's true. And so, then all the other verses about which was given to him would seem to have come from the dragon. But I don't think that's the case. I think the given is the Lord given. Well, I know, but that's the context would tell us that it was the dragon. Except the overall context, I think, says it's the Lord. But he does have, I mean, he is a, a force from the dragon. The beast receives the dragon's authority. I think he almost uh, has whatever authority the dragon has himself. You know, it's like he, the dragon gives all of his powers over to this beast, and yet God is still limiting him. I take it that the given sort of things, going back to even like nine verses 3 through 5 and so forth, and going back to the four horses and what was given to them, that when it says something was given, my take is that's talking about a limitation God puts on them. That's an interpretive thing. Well, I think uh, a little bit in, the, in verse 4 that now it's referring to, uh, it, it does, I think, support the idea of, of the Lord being what it gives because it says they worship the dragon because he, being the dragon, gave the dragon authority to the beast. So it's like the beast or the dragon is 
transferring his authority to this beast. Well, where did the dragon's authority come from? It came from the Lord. So I guess each of those features, you know, maybe 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 you see it coming through that maybe it comes through the dragon to the beast, but ultimately it comes from the Lord. That's how the dragon got his power. Yeah, I would say particularly the dragon would have no motive to only allow the beast to act for 42 months. The dragon would like for him to act forever. Patty? Well, it looks, it kind of reminded me of um, the verse that talked about God sending a strong delusion. Um, how yes. the whole world is taken in, in by this, this, this picture. Um, that God allowed that to happen um, because they didn't want the truth. And it's a test. God allows Satan to test us. You know, he allows persecution to come against the saints. And that's really going to test whether or not we have the perseverance and faith to stick it out. Just one one quick question. I think I know the answer. Every time you see 42 months and three and a half years and 1,200 whatever... You think that's all referring to the same period of time? I do. Yes. And, and I, I agree. And that then, in, in verse 5, which says, the authority to act for 42 months, that period of time was set by God. Yes. And the, the dragon here probably told the beast, do all that you can. But the dragon was limited to 42 months, so that necessarily limited the beast to 42 months. So... Yeah, that, yeah that, you know, a number of these things, you know, there's various ways to look at it. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly not trying to be dogmatic, but I, that's, that's my take on these things, is that God ultimately puts a, you know, boundary on even this sea beast. And he can only do so much. Jason? Are you going to talk about the composite image of the animals? Yeah, I will in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yes. Just to follow up, so the three and a half years, whenever you divide into months, or Days. Yes. Uh, is that referring to a literal time period? I would assume not. Off the gate. They're all the same time period. 360 days a year, roughly 260 days for three and a half years or right. two months. Right. Yes, but I don't think it's a literal three and a half years. Yes. Okay. Just as both time periods. History with not even, wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that. I mean, so there are probably some people who've tried, but uh, yeah, I don't see that at all. Um, and and so you see um, that all who dwell on the earth worship him. Everybody whose name's not written in the in the book of life, you know. And basically, how should you deal with this? Well, if somebody's destined for captivity, he's going to go to captivity. If anyone kills with a sword, he's going to be killed by the sword. God's the ruler. He's going to let happen what he allows to happen. Don't worry about it. Just persevere and be faithful. Just stay with the Lord. Just do what he says. Now, one other thing that we ought to say, and this is what uh, Jason asked. What about the composite nature of this beast? In fact, what about a lot of these things? I think I'm just going to say a couple things and I'll let you study this. But there are a zillion intriguing parallels between the sea beast and the monster beast of Daniel 7 
and particularly the little horn on the master, monster beast of Daniel 7. For example, the animals seem to swallow up each other in Daniel 7. And what did you have? You had the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the monster. And this beast sort of in, encompasses all of those same animals in itself. He emerges from the sea, and that's where the beast came from in Daniel 7. There were blasphemous names, and they, you certainly have that in Daniel 7. Um, you had the ten horns, and that's how many you had on the monster beast in Daniel 7. Um, he's powerful. Uh, he makes war with the saints for 42 months, and in Daniel 7 he makes war with them and overcomes them for a time, times, and half a time. Same period of time. So I would assume that in historical reference that this sea beast in, 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 the, in the time period of the seven churches that this sea beast and his function was exercised by the monster beast of Daniel 7 or by the little horn on the monster beast of Daniel 7. Now that brings us back to Daniel 7 and understanding the book of Daniel. And there's a lot of things to be said about that. I think that Daniel, um, that we need to start with the model statue dream, which is kind of the basic pattern for the book. The statue dream refers to a succession of four empires, and God establishes his empire that becomes universal and conquers the others. I think then Daniel 7 is the same thing, a succession of four empires in the days of the fourth empire, God establishes his that ultimately brings down theirs. I think that the rest of Daniel, like chapter 8, refers to two of the four empires. And I think if you put it all together, we have named the first three, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And that it becomes obvious who the fourth one is. I believe it's Rome. Now, so I'm going to say that in the first century, that the sea beast that's persecuting the Christians is essentially the Roman Empire. Most people agree with that interpretation. I am not, though, thinking that that's the main thing we need to think about for ourselves. I don't really care who said, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Paul, and all that. I care about the concept and the principle don't divide up and follow after men. It's, it's interesting to know that the Roman Empire persecuted the Christians in the first century. It's more relevant to me to know that one of the ways that God is going to try, or that, that the devil is going to try to get me away from God now, is through persecution by whatever sea beasts he's got in our day and time. So I think there is a historical reference. I think Daniel 7 brings that out. That's not what I want to emphasize when I go through the book any more than I try to do what I'm going through 1 Corinthians, trying to figure out, you know, who said what in Corinth. Does that make any sense? Comments and questions on all that. Yeah, Eric, you don't have any? You can I just think it's interesting in verse 1 that you said, on his head was a blasphemous name, which means the moment you saw him, you know this was not from God. Yes, yet, true. still have people following him. People like to follow what's not from God. <laughs> it's just interesting to me that as we look at these 
uh, the dragon, these, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth. And we're given these pictures of these beasts as just being you know, these terrible enemies that you know, when you first look at them, they're scary. Yeah. <laughs> they're scary. And, we, you know, and, you know, even with those, it's, I think it's much better to give a picture like that and then say, okay, this was wrong. Or this was these people. Yeah, to re- we really see the danger in you know the, just the, vis- the visions that we see here. He does this all the way through in picture form for a purpose. Mm-hmm. So I think keeping it in picture mostly is the right thing for us. And so, other questions and comments? Yeah, as it comes to the pictures, you know, we've been trying to remember it all started with the throne. It seems like he shifts all, you know, that throne room is still there, but maybe he turns his head, he looks over here, and he sees what's going on at the earth. Because we've had a lot of things happening yeah. on it. So I think there's, you've got a dual screen yeah. Yeah. presentation. It's multimedia here. You still see the throne room, and you see what happens there, but you see the, the results also here on the earth. Absolutely, yes. And, and you're really seeing almost the connection between the throne and what happens on the earth. And, and, and I think if you keep that in mind... If John was still seeing those two things, yes. then that made this vision puts it in a different light. If that's the only thing that you're seeing, I think you've got more questions than if you still have the other one there, which you know everything's okay over here. You've seen what's going on in heaven. Let's just see how this relates to that. And it, I think it, 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 John probably had a better understanding, well, obviously, uh, of what he was seeing than we did because it. We, we just need to keep things like that in mind. Well, sure. And the basic principle, then, is everything that happens on the earth, we need to see in the light of God on his throne and what the Lord is doing. Yes? I, I, I like Scott's point, but I thought he was going to make a different one, which was sort of an echo or repeat of what you said, which I'd like to bring us back to briefly, and it is that there's sort of like two ways we could read Revelation. One is, is what did it mean to the Christians being persecuted in the first century. And what I like is when you said, you know, I don't care who said I'm a Paulus, I'm a Paul, etc. What do we, can we take from this today? We can take the same thing the first Christians did, that there will be persecution, but hey, end of verse 10, uh, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Yes. And that there is an appropriate way to deal with the devil's allies. We're going to see that with each ally. There's the right way to deal with it. How do you deal with the sea beast? With the persecution? Perseverance and faith. Trust God and stick it out no matter how ferocious the persecution is. That's the the thing we have to do with that. Comments and questions? Alright, um, I'm willing to be governed by what you think. Looking around, I would say this might be a good time to just draw a close to this for tonight and start again in the class tomorrow. I don't know, what do you think about that?